try not to react in a vacuum. You know, right now we have enough of a crisis and enough news to really fall into madness. So you really have to think, okay, what are my inputs? What's happening on the other side? What's happening on the revenue side? You know, and how can I react on the spend side in that way? You cannot yeah. overreact, but you cannot underreact either. You have to give a reaction that is measurable to a reaction. That's the best way to really put a measure and put a fence around the initiatives that you're going to go forward with. Hi, I'm Danny. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole, or what we call spend culture. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories. This is Danny, and I have a really special guest today. And today we have Maria from uh, Zora. So Maria, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I feel very, very lucky, very honored that I was selected. Yes, of course. Maria Centeno is the current head of procurement at Zora, a publicly traded enterprise software company that creates and provides software for businesses to launch and manage their subscription-based services. She's done a lot of really amazing roles, both at Salesforce as the director of strategic sourcing and also at eBay too, two huge companies as the strategic sourcing manager. So I think uh, Maria can offer some really awesome insights to the procurement audience that we have on the podcast today. And I'm super excited to learning from you. Thank you. Again, thank you so much for having me, Danny. It has been a pleasure meeting you. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to have this conversation with you. And, you know, you've worked in some of the largest tech companies in the world. So I just wanted to really start you off with like a quick question on how you got started in procurement and what made you choose tech companies. And also, I noticed that you were actually a marketer. So I'm a marketer myself. Yeah. How does your marketing background relate to your current role? With anyone that you have spoken in the procurement field, for sure, they will tell you that they were not set to be a procurement person. You know, that's not how you grow up in life and you want to be an astronaut or you want to be a doctor, but you don't want to be a procurement person. You know, that's <laughs> not in the spectrum. So most of us fall into this as we develop our career in business. That wasn't any different. You know, my background, my trade, I'm a chemical engineer. I'm very found, I'm very comfortable about numbers and analytics. And that served me well, you know, when I wanted to continue my education in business. So I have also an MBA. And in the MBA, I have a specialization in brand management in marketing. It's something that I really like. So that's how I finished business school. I went to the workforce, you know, here in the United States in a leadership development program. And those are very common, you know, where they recruit fresh MBAs and you go through rotations. My first rotation was marketing communication. So that was very related to my, the background that I have from academia. And then my second rotation was procurement. That's how I felt in procurement. In that specific company where I started working initially, I was doing what is called direct procurement, which is direct materials, you know, lumber and nails, because it was a logistics company, you know, for pallets. That's a very, very short stint. And I was recruited from there, from eBay, you know, and that's how I initiated my career in the tech company. I was very fortunate, you know, I was working on the East Coast and 
uh, receiving a call from eBay and that they're giving you the opportunity to interview back in 2006. You know, it's not the eBay that we know today. The eBay back in 2006 was a humongous company together with PayPal and Skype. You know, all those three companies were together. They were centralized in the procurement function and I was given the opportunity to have a category manager role. I start with real estate and workplace, uh, and then I moved from there to a little bit of tech. I did data centers there as well as marketing, you know, was more of my career there. And what I mean marketing is the category management of marketing. You know, I was doing a procurement function, but what I was buying, the category that was buying was marketing services. That would go, you know, from creative agencies, advertising, public relations, social media. So it was a very exciting time in my career. That gave me a little bit of network here in the Bay Area, in the technology sector. And in one of those roundtables, you know, that we were discussing, you know, the future of procurement, I met a procurement person from Salesforce. And that's how I got, you know, the first connection to be recruited by Salesforce. And I continue my development there. I came to Salesforce initially as an individual contributor, as a category manager for marketing. And I went through the ranks, you know, and end up as a director of procurement for marketing and events and I also took the leadership for services, for all the services of procurement there at, at Salesforce. It was a valuable experience, you know, because not only the tech sector offers a very fast-paced, exciting kind of environment, but you're also joining companies where you see them grow in an exponential yeah. way. When I first joined uh, Salesforce, Salesforce was maybe $1.32 billion in revenue. And if you check Salesforce today, it's well north of $15 billion in revenue. When I joined, there were 5,000 employees. Today, there are 50,000 employees. So seeing all that growth and learning, you know, how to scale on that, because the fact that the company grows like that, it doesn't mean that the financial function, the procurement function is going to grow. You really need to learn how to scale in order to support that humongous growth. So I think those are the way I cut my teeth, you know, in, in this area. Love the technology sector, love tech, you know, definitely that's an area where I devoted myself. I have a strong belief in the function of procurement and the effectiveness of the function of procurement will be mostly with people that have subject matter expertise in the categories that they are sourcing. You know, they are very good business cases for a generalist, but I think the farther and the better relationship that you establish with your business partner, that most cases is through knowledge, is what takes the function a little bit farther and a little bit to be more effective in the company. Totally. And I think just being able to speak their language, right? Because I've spoken yes. to a lot of procurement leaders and, you know, sometimes it does get a little bit dry. They use a lot of jargon or they can't really relate to you, especially, you know, if you're in charge of a category and you're trying to talk to marketers, I might not understand where you're talking about when it comes to the direct or indirect. But when you say, oh, like I'm talking about the advertising spend, I'm talking about ROI. I'm like, okay, now you're speaking my language. Exactly. Exactly. That's critical. And it's important because a little bit of a discovery, you know, in procurement happens in front of data, you know, analyzing the spend data. But if you don't know the drivers, if you don't know the goals and the benefits, you know, that the marketing function, for example, now that we're using marketing, gets from those investments, you know, it's more difficult to really discover and continue to grow the relationship in order to fulfill your goals, which are ultimately mm -hmm. savings, optimizing the investment, controlling risk. So that happens through a lot of development and a lot of partnership with the, with the business. Absolutely. I think in a lot of more traditional type companies, um, procurement is often seen as a person that cuts costs, you know, tries to save the money, but it's more of a value add than that, obviously. And I think especially in tech companies um, where there's a lot of insights that you can get 
from a key procurement role like the one that you hold right now. Something that's interesting, though, in some earlier stage tech companies, they actually lack this kind of role in procurement and they don't get one till very later on. And this causes obviously some challenges. So how do you think a CEO or founder can start thinking about filling that procurement role? And when is a good time to do that? Yeah, exactly. No, and that's very important. And also seeing the other side of the coin, would a company that is too new or too in the startup phase will be attractive for a procurement professional as well. So uh, it's a double-edged sword there. So I think most of, to be honest with you, you know, most of the type of positions that have been attracted to have been in post-IPO companies. And the need, the real incisive need of the procurement function is mostly, you know, through the IPO process when we're trying to establish compliance, when we're trying to have a visibility and transparency on spend management. However, I do see, you know, and a lot of my peers are working in pre-IPO companies, and you know, I think the uh, function of procurement becomes important you know, when each one of your business functions are starting to manage you know, their own P&Ls, you know, trying to see how to execute their function in the most optimized and in the most rational way you know, from the financial perspective. And it's really the it's, it, procurement can be seen not only as cutting costs, as you very well said, but it's really the, the real financial connection with the business partner. You know, there might be a mm-hmm. connection in FP&A, you know, where the FP&A partner is managing the budget, but as almost forecasting, that's almost the pre- and procurement will do that closure. Okay, how with this budget that I have, I'm going to manage to meet these goals. You know, what is in in the industry? You know, what is it that we need in the company? And how do we connect the dots? Budget, my needs, the industry. So I think that while, again, you know, most of the jobs that you will see out there and most of the opportunities will be closely post-IPO or well after the IPO, the public offering of a company, thinking about procurement, getting closer or gearing up to an IPO is a smart thing to do for any CEO. Totally. And I think you kind of explained the connection between finance so well. I kind of see it also as like a front end, right? You know how developers like to talk about front end, back end. Procurement's like the front end. And then, you know, you got finance as a back end where it's like the spending insights, right? Exactly. Exactly. And we also serve as a bridge. You know, finance has a lot of policies and compliance matters that, you know, it can be overwhelming, but someone executing their function, whether it's information technology, engineering, development, or marketing. And we have that knowledge. We can bridge that knowledge and we can quickly, you know, we can streamline a procurement process, you know, to make sure that we still remain in compliance, but we're also meeting, you know, the aggressive timelines, which we all do, especially in the technology sector. Totally. It's always that fast paced environment, right? I'm sure you love it, but hate it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think I hate it, but then I sit back and see other industries and my mind blows. And it's like, I can't, I can't operate at this space. You know, I, I need more. <laughs> No paper POs for you guys, no. Exactly, no at all. No, no, nothing, no paper, nothing. You know, everything is electronic. That's the part that it's crazy to me. I speak to a procurement leader in tech like yourself versus someone who might work in the construction industry where it's very paper-based. And now with COVID-19 and the downturn, they're like, oh, I got to now reinvent the entire process. Yeah, yeah. My current office partner is my spouse, is my husband, and he works in a different type of company and they were concerned that they don't have access to their physical files. And he was telling me that. I was like, what? You know, it's like that doesn't exist in my world. Yeah, you can't relate to that one. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So this is kind of like a fun question. Um, We like to ask a lot of the procurement leaders this. What are some of the procurement horror stories that you've seen in tech companies? 
Ooh, I have to be very careful because I work with very public companies with very no names. Totally. There. No names is fine. Yeah. Not horror stories, but I think more uh, how opportunities develop. You know, I, I remember one of the most exciting projects that I did at eBay is currently one of the biggest data centers, you know, for that company. And the way we started developing that was very conservative from the financial perspective. You know, we were thinking that we were going to lease data centers. So we went out to the market, you know, looking for lease financial partners, you know, banks, you know, that will help out, you know, these lease and construction companies and lands and possibilities. We were talking to states, you know, to the state of Nevada, to the state of Utah, you know, to see which one would give us more easements or incentives, you know, to go to their state to develop this data center. And then after we have done this humongous amount of work with a lot of involvement, I'm talking to the treasurer of the company and I'm explaining to her that, well, you know, we need this line of credit, you know, to do this lease and it's a lease back, it's a long-term lease. And she looks at me and she says, we don't need a lease. We have the money, buy it. I'm like, you know, it's a, it's, it was very refreshing because to hear, yeah, I have $300 million, we can do it. But on the other hand, it's like, why, why did I do all this work? So scratch the bank, you know, forget about it. Let's buy the land ourselves. So those type of things, even though it sounds like a lot of, you know, rinse and repeat, you know, but those are things that you, in your professional lifetime, you know, you're only, only going to see once. And, and many people won't see even the, those opportunities. So I feel very, very fortunate on that case. Later, not a horror story, but also an opportunity and a little bit that showcase what we need to do in procurement is working for marketing and events. The sky is the limit, especially working for Salesforce. Salesforce does Dreamforce every year, which is a humongous, it's the biggest tech convention in the world. And it happens in the city of San Francisco. And you may think, you know, well, you're looking for your suppliers, you're taking care of your event. The nuances, you know, that an event like that uh, has you know um, the city of San Francisco has seven hundred fifty thousand citizens, and this event brings one hundred seventy thousand registrants. So we wow. increase the population of the city by more than ten percent. You know, <laughs> well to almost to twenty percent. So I feel that the city physically sinks every time Dreamforce you know would come to the city, and that affects the half of the city. You know, the type of conversation that you have to have with the city authorities and the logistics that all that could get. The other thing is that as the company was growing, you know, the element of entertainment for this type of event was getting very, very important to the point that merit the creation of the category management for celebrities and entertainment. And mm-hmm. that was under my umbrella. Um, I was very lucky, you know, to find a very, very talented gentleman to do this. He developed himself in this area. And I think he's one of the most talented individuals I have worked with. But the patience and the love that you have to have to work in this environment when you are dealing with politicians, with agencies, you know, with private uh, flights, and some of them have, you know, personal security, and some of them, you know, were former heads of state. So you have to offer accommodations to all these people. And these accommodations, some you may think, you know, is, is a celebrity being talked about, some others are a real security facts in a city that is very, very convoluted with an event like that. So I think that the quick learning, you know, and, and the openness that you need to have, you know, executing this function, you know, for these type of companies has to be there. You know, you cannot be 
too rigid in terms of uh, what may come your way, you know, because one day, yes, it, it might be a couple of software or a couple of applications, but the next day it might be a cruise ship. You know, that's very well yeah. happened in my career that we needed to bring a cruise ship to the city of San Francisco. And you will need to learn, you know, what it entails to have a cruise ship, you know, the type of law that applies to that, the type of taxation that applies to that. And you have to learn it in a way that you you don't need to be only informed. You need to be sharp enough to hold a negotiation, to hold yourself in a negotiation in that frame. So I don't know if too much horror, you know, but it's more <laughs> the excitement. It's something that drives me, something that I, I like of my career. But I could see, you know, how certain personalities or certain professions will, will just run the other way when they present it with something like that. See, these are such cool, you know, insights that we get to peek into. Mm-hmm. Because like, I've only been an attendee of Salesforce and it was so impossible getting like a hotel room in the city. So I can imagine, you know, all the logistics, right? Exactly. And and understanding the footprint of the city and San Francisco has just a certain amount of hotels and that won't change from one year to the other. San Francisco has one of the most expensive real estate, if not the most expensive real estate in the United States. So how do you bring more people with the same amount of hotel rooms? And only certain type of hotel rooms qualify because you cannot go below three stars, you know, in that case. So it's very, very interesting. It's a part of my career that I I treasure. And as I continue to develop, you know, what I wanted to develop the most was the tech side. And that's a little bit how my journey took me to Sora, you know, to develop myself and, and sharpen myself in what is the tech side of procurement. Totally. And that's kind of um, a really good insight, too, into, you know, more of a newer company than Salesforce. Like Salesforce, when you left, you said, I think it was like 50,000 employees, right? 40,000 when I left. 40,000. Today's 50,000. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's crazy. And um, maybe we can uh, talk a little bit more about your role actually at Zora. You know, for me as a marketer, I know the company went down in history as one who went viral for like the best Mm -hmm. pitch deck ever. Yeah. So as a procurement leader... How was it like going into the company? How would you just describe its spend culture and how has it evolved? Sora has a very interesting business proposal, which is the subscription. You know, they support the subscription mm-hmm. economy. And that's something that is, is not only related to the company, but related as a whole, as a society, how we're changing our consumer patterns. And you that you are in marketing, I'm sure you find that very interesting. Even under the circumstances that we are today, under COVID-19, you know, how much more we depend, you know, from subscription services and from yeah. services that were known as brick and mortar, like buying clothes are at the mall and how they have evolved to subscription, you know, on time delivery, more data is available, you know, for the market. So now the brands are targeting not only, you know, females from 30 to 45, but they're, they're targeting Maria, you know, who is from 30 to 45, I won't disclose my age, uh, and, and have certain tastes and have certain patterns of consumption. So I think as we have evolved as a consumer and as the brands have evolved to serve those consumers, you know, proposals out there and companies out there that Sora, you know, will start uh, or they are thriving. It was very interesting, you know, and it has been very interesting. And, and I think the right move in my career at the right time. I have worked with a slightly bigger companies, you know, before. Sora is also post-IPO. Sora is also a public company. But I here was given a very unique opportunity, which is to oversee all the procurement function. 
So mm-hmm. under my responsibility is not only the exercising the strategic sourcing part, which is the relationship management with your suppliers and the vendors and doing the deals, but also how do you stru- structure the procurement function for a company that wants to grow at the pace that Suora and any tech company wants to grow? How do you sustain the operations to be scalable? What type of talent do you have to bring in? What are the expectations that you set up with that talent? So usually to for the procurement function to run, to function, you will need people, you will need systems, and you will need a, a, a plan. And that's something that at Sora was given the opportunity to, to design this. I must say, Sora have a very important building blocks for the procurement function. You know, systems were there. There was transparency on the spend. You know where to find the data. And that was very, very important for me as I was coming. That was part of the questions I was asking during my interview process. Uh, but having those building blocks there, you know, it only makes things a little bit easier when you go with the next layer. Usually you sit down as a leader in procurement and you map out what are the systems, what are the things that I want to go, uh, the disciplines that I want to fulfill. You have to fulfill compliance, you have to fulfill savings, spend analytics, supply relationship mm-hmm. management. So you establish a little bit and the way I usually do that is in a mind map. And then you establish a timeline of which things come first. The other very interesting part of the procurement area too is that like any other business function, we have a humongous proliferation of technology that can support that function. So technology that can help you out in negotiating contracts, you know, executing contracts, uh, contract repository, artificial intelligence, AI, that can help you out to do discovery on your either your spend data or your contract data. Electronic signature, you know, not going too far away, you know, which is an older technology, but thinking people that work without paper, you know, electronic signature platforms are very important. <laughs> And a lot of software that has to do with the tracking and the analytics of how, what is the spend behavior of your company, not only from the perspective of how much did I spend and what is the history, but who is spending and why are they spending, are they cycles and what are the type of engagement that we have with each app. So that type of intelligence, you know, make us sharper in terms of the decisions that we're going to do, but also foster more collaboration with each one of the business units that you are serving. I think you explained that so well, and it relates really well with um, another guest that was like a procurement executive recruiter. So she kind of hires people like you for other companies. And she mentioned that a key difference between, let's say, a procurement manager where someone who's, you know, doing the role versus someone who's managing the function. The key difference is that you're able to actually look forward and plan and use these insights to make better decisions, whereas someone who's more junior, they might just be making sure that you're meeting the KPIs. So I think like having that kind of mentality is so crucial in a leadership role for this. Yes. And you have to surround yourself, especially when it's a company, a growing company like Sora, with people that are alike in that Mm -hmm. uh, type of mentality. You will get across, you know, your professional life, across professionals, practitioners, that they stick to a process and they grab that process like a blankie. And if that process change only one ounce to the right, that's the end of the world. That's not the type of professional I should have. You know, that type of professional works very well in very well-established companies. In companies like this, you are um, establishing the processes because, yes, you need compliance and you need uh, repeatability of that process. But as you scale, you need to be able to flex and modify the process to really meet the the needs of the company. So you are flexing all the time and you have to make sure that you're not only flexing your team, but also all the teams that you are interacting with. The execution 
of a purchase of a company is not only procurement, it's not only the business partner, it's finance who's doing the budgeting, it's legal that gets involved. If you're buying something where it's an exchange of data, so important nowadays, you know, you will have a team of security, you will need, you will have a team of privacy. And each nuance of the contract, you know, whether it's related to applications, you may involve IT. If it's related to labor, you might need to involve HR. Even if it's related to the use of your brand and logo, you will need to involve marketing or public relations. So Mm -hmm. making sure that all that machine is moving cohesively is also part of the function of procurement. So in regards to kind of the practices that you've seen throughout your career and maybe for people who are newer to a procurement role in tech, what are some of the things that they do wrong? So some of the learnings that you've kind of learned the hard way and um, some of the things that people have to do with challenges when they enter a new role like this? The traditional landmines is, uh, I think the first one is the one that I said, sticking to a process and this is the process and this is Bible, this is the Quran and I will never touch it. (laughs) Processes are not the holy scriptures. You know, they are there to serve us. And business processes are there to make sure that the business function is complete in a rational manner. If the business process are going to stop yours, going to stop the possibility of business of your business partner, that's a business process that needs to be revised. So uh, that's one of the first things, you know, make sure that you prove that process first, that you become familiar with that process. But if you find holes of you, find ways to streamline it, that you go with it, that you surround yourself with people that are like you. And when I mean like you, it doesn't have to be, you know, exactly the same profile or a person who likes public speaking and likes numbers. It's more in terms of that they have a mentality that they are here to stick with the growth of the company, you know, that they have that flexibility. The other thing, the other big trap, I guess it had to do with the technology. Technology could be a double-edged sword. There's so much and so many out there. Everybody, you go to a bar and you're talking to someone and within minute two of the conversation, they will tell you about this exciting startup that they have, you know, to manage all your spend. So you really need to come to a point that you really need to rationalize and think, how many applications, how many systems do I need to run my function? And today, I think that's one of the most important questions that we have to ask ourselves as head of procurement, as head of strategic sourcing, because it's not only you who are using all these apps, you know, and I don't know if you are like me, I have pages and pages on my iPhone of stuff, but these are the apps that you're putting out there for the whole community, for your whole company. Mm -hmm. All my CEOs, you know, everybody at Sora will need to have access to this app to want to onboard the supplier, another one to put the purchase requisition, another one to process the contract, another one to evaluate the supplier. Do I really want six, seven apps, you know, in order to do procurement? You have a day job, you are a marketeer, you know, you want to pamper that brand, you want to provide leads to your sales team, you know, learning six different apps and six different processes for procurement, I don't think that's very smart. So in many Mm -hmm. ways, procurement also have to become a little bit of a function that facilitates and ease, you know, the process of procurement to your business community. And you may have your six, seven, 10 apps if you want to, but you might need to think a little bit more as a user experience expert. Okay, what if I put a blanket on top of this, a website, you know, that have different links and they, behind each link, you know, it will have each one of these functions. But you really need to ease the way, you know, to your to your community. The other thing is that as as we think about systems, 
uh, systems have to be very intuitive, okay? Mm-hmm. I remember early in my career, I have to learn a system that I shall not mention because it's commercial and out there. And to do that, we needed to hire one of the big fours, you know, one of the big consultant companies. And the folders with instructions on how to learn the system were four folders like this. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, and the font is like this in the system. But yet... As a consumer, you go and you buy an iPhone or you buy a smartphone and you turn on the iPhone and you're working. The iPhone doesn't come with a manual, you know, because they are expecting that it has been designed, the user interface has been designed to be intuitive. That's the same. If that's what your community is used to, you know, if that's what you and I are used to in our consumer life, that had to translate to the business life too. And anything that does not translate like that is going to fail. I can assure you that it's going to fail. So we need to design things in a way that anyone within the professional environment, within the company, will, we will ease the way for them to make the decisions. And behind that, there is a lot of decision trees, criteria, workflows that we need to think of in order to have that easy phase, that minimalistic phase, you that, that know about marketing and design. Do you remember the pages or the searches from the past, how certain landing pages were? As compared to Google, which is only a search box there, that's the evolution of the consumer. That's the same thing that you have to think when you're serving uh, your business partners. I love what you said there, because I think it's so important, especially coming from a procurement end, but also coming from someone who's actually the end user. You know, a lot of leaders, when they implement some solution, you know, they're not really thinking about who's actually going to be using it. They just sign the check and then off it goes, right? And then you get the compliance issue, you get the usability issue, and it's just a waste of money and time. Exactly. And the risk that you have, you know, if people don't like it, the people don't use it. If they don't use it, they are not complying with the policies and regulations of the company. So you're out of compliance or then you lose transparency to the spend because they're not doing the things through the process. So there are too many risks associated for someone not liking an app or not liking a process. So you have to make sure, you know, yes, it has to work, but also have to be likable. 100%. Our CEO always likes to use the word democratization of apps or democratization of spend. Because, you know, if you're, let's say your intern can't use it, then probably there's something there that you either have to you know, teach them a little bit better or maybe think about, okay, is this actually the right solution for us? Exactly. Exactly. And if you think about it, there's a lot of engineering on that. There's definitely a lot <laughs> of engineering on that. Totally. So this kind of relates to the whole spending insights that we were talking about earlier. Obviously, right now with the downturn, there has been budgets being cut and spend being reallocated in many companies. So how can procurement leaders best work together with finance to make sure that you're making the right spending decisions on behalf of the company moving forward? Something that I have learned throughout my career uh, has to be that try not to react in a vacuum. You know, right now mm-hmm. we have enough of a crisis and enough news to really fall into madness. So you really have to think, okay, what are my inputs? What's happening on the other side? What's happening on the revenue side? You know, and how can I react on the spend side in that way? You know, you cannot overreact, but you cannot underreact either. You have to give a reaction that is measurable to a reaction. That's the best way, you know, to really put a measure and put a fence around the initiatives that you're going to go forward with. We are part, usually in tech, I think throughout my career, that's all what I have seen, procurement is part of the finance organization. So that gives us, you know, a little bit of an upper hand in terms of having access to that information, you know, what is happening financially and how do we need to react into that. 
The other thing is that is creating opportunities. Instead of coming with a mentality of, no, we're going to cut this, you are not going to buy that, we're not going to renew that, is more coming from what are the goals that you need to achieve? You know, what are the critical goals? And let's see how do we achieve them, you know, with what we have. You know, so instead of getting a reactive action in terms of, oh, well, you know, tough luck, we're not going to do this now. No, let's keep what is important still for the business function. And let's see how can we right size things or how can we think smart about certain things in order to still complete those objectives. And that opens the door to many, many opportunities. Mm -hmm. If anything, procurement in these type of situations, which is a recession, you know, what economy, economy we call a recession, we can become very, very opportunistic. You know, it's the time of, of procurement to shine. And precisely to shine, not in the negative sense of cutting costs or, you know, this sweaty negotiation of people pounding their chest, you know, that's, <laughs> that's um, the anti that, you know, I, I cannot tolerate that. It's more about, you know, how we can really get closer as business partners and how can help you out, you know, in order to, to fulfill what you will need to do ultimately, which is in marketing to produce more leads or in sales to increase your quota or in development to meet the product or, or the launch of certain things. So I think that it's great opportunity. There might be some difficult decisions, but I think we can overcome that with reprioritization with changes in terms of what is important, selecting less initiatives. You know, sometimes we are very ambitious in terms of initiatives, but that refocusing brings more energy to things, which make things a little bit faster. Absolutely. Sometimes you have to know, you know, what to cut back on so you can focus on the things that matter, right? Absolutely. I love that answer. This is kind of like a curiosity, especially because you work in tech. So you probably have your favorite tools and tech stacks. But besides like the procurement tools that we've been talking about, what are some of your other go-to business tools that make your life easier? I never thought I would be one, but I love Slack. Me too. I'm, I'm on Slack in and out. Where we are right now, the platform where we are, you know, any type of video conference platform, you know, Zoom, something that I become familiar with. And right now out of need, you know, because it's me and my seven-year-old is doing second grade <laughs> through Zoom. And so I guess that is very prevalent out there. I like mind maps uh, as well. You know, there are certain apps that offer that. You know, some are paid, some are not. So are, are part of, of the Google platform. So you can do mind maps there. So I like that. I'm a very visual person. So flow charts is something that I'm very close to or I work with a lot. So I think all the tools are very good for that. You know, Lucid charts are there, Visio. I don't know if that's an older tool, you know, I'm dating myself, <laughs> but even draw.io, draw.io is one of the, it's part of the Google stack right now yeah. and you can have access to this. So I think things of visualization, communication, collaboration is something that I go to a lot. You might be surprised by this because I work with marketing for so long. I devote a lot of time and energy to my presentations. Presentations need to be pretty. Presentations need to be engaging. So I put a lot of time and effort on making them as streamlined as possible, not making, you know, too loaded. I use a lot of infographics to, you know, try to prepare infographics on how to buy. You okay. know, that's the, that's the best way to communicate processes. So a platform that I like to use a lot, it can get a little bit clunky if you, you are not in the pro side, is Canva which is an app from this Australian lady that I think was a woman. Uh, I use a lot. I, I found myself going to Canva a lot, you know, either for personal, for an Instagram posting, or even to do infographics, because it's an easy way for someone who's not a designer, you know, to put so, something quickly there. 
Now you're speaking our language. We love Canva at Procurify too. We use that for all of our podcast posts. Yeah, no, I think, so I think it's great. It's super yeah. easy. It's super easy, yeah. That's awesome. And I love how you mentioned that you make infographics. See, that's like your marketing mind kind of speaking yeah. too. Where um, I've seen a lot of uh, procurement leaders, when they try to explain something, they make all these crazy flow charts and they print it out on paper and you try to like present it to somebody and I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. No, you have to think of your audience again, marketing mind. You have to think of your audience. If your audience yeah. is a developer and they're going to help you to build the back end, yes, you need to show up there with a flow chart. That's the only way you can have a conversation. <laughs> but if your audience is the whole company and you're trying to communicate the policy, having the policy printed, of course, you know, it will be part of the code of conduct. But having a quick infographic as a reference is something that's going to go the long way. I love it. I would love to see one of your examples. We can send that over to the guests and they can kind of take a look because that might be inspiring to a lot of people. Absolutely. I have a couple of that are simple enough that we can share. Yeah. Perfect. Well, um, this is kind of nearing the end of our conversation. I don't want to keep you for too long. So maybe we can end it off with some fun questions. Absolutely. So where do you normally find your learnings as a procurement leader? Like what are you currently reading, watching and listening to right now? I listen to... Podcast mostly for entertaining. I think I find a lot of my learnings and evolution, you know, uh, meeting with my peers. Here in the tech sector, it's very common that not only you have a close relation with your peers, but because if there is so much rotation and attrition from one company to the other, you know, the team that you have five years ago, that now they work in 25 different companies, you know. So mm-hmm. a lot of the people that I work with at Salesforce, and I was lucky enough, now they are the head of procurements of, of other companies. So we had a relationship that we built as peers. So we feel very comfortable, you know, having conversations right now as leader to leader about what's going on in different type of, of industry. So I attend a lot of roundtables. There are specific conventions for procurement that I attend. Um, I love, you know, speaking engagements as well. So that's that's my way to attend these conventions, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm giving something too and I'm getting something. That's awesome. I really like to understand the story of each company. So I have been fortunate enough, I don't know for what reason, but every company I go to, they have their book. So they have their book and Mark Benioff at Salesforce, I think, is on his second or third book. Sora also has their book as well, you know, they explain a little bit about the subscription economy. I find LinkedIn as a good source, you know, especially because the feed is, is built by contributions of your peers. So they have a lot of relevant data there. I really like, you know, like Business Insider, um, the regular media, you know, to go for that. Back in the day when I was doing only marketing, I, I was very, very attached to Ad Age. I remember, you know, you know, right now that I'm doing everything, I try to seek more information through other areas, you know, also for technology. There is certain seasonality when I'm focused on certain system, you know, right now I'm focused on the acquisition of something called contract lifecycle management, CLM. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's relevant for procurement and also for legal. So there are certain associations about contract management, the International Association of Contract Management, that I became a member. And that's something where I get niche information as well on that. When I'm doing an RFP or a selection for a vendor, I like to go to the industry analyst, you know, Gardner Report, Forrester Report, you know, to see what they have been published out there, you know, the magic quadrants and all that, to see who is who. And, And that's an easy way to digest the content and really understand a vast industry, classify, you know, which one are the disruptors or which ones are the up and coming companies as well. Totally. Yeah, that magic quadrant, it's always quoted by procurement leaders. 
Yeah, absolutely. Easy way to reference, right? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely an easy reference, yeah. Totally. I guess this is kind of my last question of the day before we kind of end this really awesome conversation. What's the one piece of advice that you wish you received in your career? You know, right now, at this point of my career, I have been very loyal to my companies, you know, and and I think that's not going to change, you know, but I, considering the lifetime of a professional in tech, you know, I usually stay longer with the companies. That has served me well in terms of the relationship I have built, the type of knowledge that I have gotten from there. But I have seen, you know, that people churn faster than what I have done with my career. So I don't know, maybe that got me thinking, you know, maybe should I have gone faster through different type of companies? When I was at Salesforce, you know, after seven years, I decided, you know what, I I really want to go to the next level. I really want to lead a procurement organization. And I realized in seven years, Danny, the amount of companies that were born in seven years in the 60-mile radius around San Francisco was humongous. So it's kind of, hmm, you were off that channel for a while, and now you're surprised. So I, I wish that I would have my finger on that a little bit more, you know, and not getting us a surprise like, oh, wait, who? You know, <laughs> what company? And who were the what? So I think that that's important, especially in an industry that evolves so quickly and has so much, they are so thirsty here, you know, for innovation and you see new things all the time. I think we should keep our finger on that a little bit more. You know, we are getting busy. We, we get very busy and very in the trenches, you know, with your own company and what you're doing. But I think sure. you have to look to the sides, you know, not only for, for the journey of your next career move, but also even for your own learning, you know, and to see what is good out there. You know, you sometimes you are married with a system for five, six years, and then you realize, you know what, you know, this new company is using this new system that is one quarter of the cost and is way better than what you have. So that's the type of things that I would advise, you know, everybody, especially working in tech. Eyes wide open, ears wide open, you know, your fingers <laughs> out there. Not to test the water professionally, but really to see what is new out there. Even if you just did the RFP, you know, two, one, two years ago, you really want to understand, you know, which are the companies that are going to prevail in each area or each type of the industry that you're exploring. That is super awesome advice. And I love also looking at the changes, especially, you know, within these whole software organizations. I remember going to... San Francisco, when I was super young, I think back in the early 2000s. And then now when I go to San Francisco for business conferences or whatever, it's like a completely different playing field. It's it's completely (laughs) different view, completely different companies, you know, things that we didn't know they were going to exist and things that you take for granted. You know, something really funny is that in San Francisco, of course, we have Uber and we have all the flavors of Uber. You know, there there are so many Ubers, you know, Uber X, Uber Pool, Uber, 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 Uber. And I got used to a certain type of Uber, you know, the Uber Black. You know, I'm a female traveling alone at night after a dinner. I don't want surprises, you know, so I will take Uber Black everywhere. And one day I have to go for business to Portland. And I was looking at my app, what is Uber Black? I said, there is no word. How I'm going to live with Uber Black? What is this? That's true. You know, you get used to your surroundings or your services. And then when the services are a little bit different, you, you feel a little bit out of the water. But that's a little bit, you know, San Francisco has a lot of things that are detractors, you know, the cost of living, you know, we have a lot of problems. But there is a lot of things also that are very positive for San Francisco and that we feel very, very blessed that we're exposed to them. 
it's so crazy. We just got Uber and Lyft here in Vancouver. So if you came here, you would be like, oh my God, you don't even have it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea of carrying money is something that my husband cannot deal with me with that because I never carry money because you don't need it anymore. That's so true. Everything's kind of like mobile now, right? With Apple Pay, Google Pay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And everything is charged to your accounts, you know, now even groceries, you know, my groceries are now delivered to my footsteps. So that's what we're doing. Oh, yeah, you guys have a Amazon delivery. Yeah, we have several. We have Amazon Fresh and we have Amazon Whole Foods, you know, because they own Whole Foods as well. And they have Amazon Pantry. And then you have Instacart too. And, you have, and then each one of the chains, of the supermarket chains, they have their own delivery too and their own app. So you keep adding apps to your poor phone, you know. I wish we had those here. We still have to go to the store. So hopefully in a few years, we'll catch up to San Francisco. <laughs> I'm sure you will get it because it's, it's very convenient. I think about young mothers, young parents, you know, they might not want to leave the house, you know, not only for what is happening right now or busy people, you know, that the last thing that they want to do after a grueling week is to spend the morning of a Saturday, you know, going for groceries. You want to spend more time with your kids, etc. I think that's a very convenient thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the great conversation and the learnings today, Maria. Thank you, Dani. This has been amazing. And, and now you have a follower too. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in on another episode of Spend Culture Stories. If you like the series, please support us by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to subscribe so you can get notified of the newest episodes. We try to post every episode every Wednesday. This podcast is sponsored by Procurify, a software solution that is reinventing the way organizations spend. Procurify allows an accessible and convenient way to request for purchases, get approval from your manager, while allowing your finance team to get the visibility and control you need on every purchase. Learn more about Procurify at www.procurify.com.